walk along these city streets you used to walk around with me. And every step I take reminds you how much you meant to me. Oh, how can I forget you when there is always something that do remind me? Always something that do remind me. I was born to love you, and I will never be free. You'll always be a part of me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. When shadows fall, I pass a small cafe where we would dance at night. And I remember how it felt to kiss and hold you tight. How can I forget you when there is always something that do remind me? I was always something that do remind me. I was born to love you and I will never be free. You'll always be a part of me. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you should find you miss the sweet and tender love we used to share, just go back to the places there we used to know, and I'll be there. How can I forget you? And I was always something to remind me. Hi, everybody. I hope I hope that this works because I'm literally borrowing my neighbor's Wi-Fi because some cable collapsed in front of the place to yesterday uh, and the internet is out and is going to be out for the foreseeable future so I hope this works I'm pretty sure it was the deep state pretty sure they're trying to stop me from uh, from uh, pilling everybody on uh, the year anniversary of January 6th but that's okay I can do it on January 7th I even wore my uh commemorative Boogaloo Boys shirt to remind us all. Okay, if the audio is fine, that's it. You don't have to look at me. In fact, I kind of recommend you not look at me while you're listening to any of this. Because who needs to, who needs to see this? So yes, so yesterday was the year anniversary of the uh, insurrectionary attack on the Capitol. And I remember a year ago, I streamed. I remember, saw it happening on my phone while I was getting tacos. And people were like, holy shit. Uh, and then uh, I talked about it a little bit, but mostly I talked about the book that we were talking about. The, um, uh, the... For the Republic for which it stands. And I mostly just said uh, this is pretty much just funny and people freaking out about it should settle down. Uh, And then I actually got my uh, the stream got like cut down into chunks by weirdos who have put it upon themselves to hold people accountable for bad takes because it's an making Nazism happen or something. And 
they said, "How look, this person says that the cap is just a shrine to um, corruption and that there's nothing to be uh, there's nothing to be mourned there. And uh, I was correct. And I got to say, a year later, I still feel very correct. I got to say, honestly, the degree to which the insurrectionary energy that everyone was freaked out about kind of just dissipated after uh, Biden was inaugurated surprised me. And I was minimizing it at the time. I was saying this is not the, the fucking uh, giant deal you guys are acting like it is. But even I assumed that there would be, a, and I said it a number of times, some sort of eruption of stochastic violence, some some remainder of like, uh, super dedicated Q people who would uh, take matters into their own hands. And that didn't even happen. We didn't even get that. The closest thing we've gotten to any sort of development of uh, the, the real cultic uh, edge of uh, Trump dieheartery are those guys who are like slow walking Jonestown in Dallas right now. Those people who are just sort of egging themselves into doing a mass suicide. Everybody else went home. Everybody else went home and uh, decided to die of coronavirus to own the liberals. Somebody says 50-50 odds it was a FBI entrapment gone wrong. See, this is where I think you got to think about it through the looking glass. Just like what uh, uh, Tom O'Neill said about the Manson murders being a CIA MKUltra thing gone wrong. What if it's gone right? You know, not necessarily that there is any specific goal being uh, desired, but just that happening is better for uh, the security state than it not happening. And when you have as many fingers and as many extremist pies as the FBI always does, Stopping things from happening uh, isn't really a good percentage because you're not going to get blamed either way. I mean, 9-11 basically proved that. You're going to get more money no matter what happens. Now, you have to stop some things. Once in a while, you've got to stop a thing so you can point to it. But a really big thing like that, stopping it isn't the percentage play. Letting it happen is the percentage. And in the years since, the people who insisted that you take the insurrection seriously have pointed to, as evidence that they were correct, the fact that uh, Q psychos and uh, Trumpists are taking all of these local seats and trying to take over uh, a state secretary, uh, state electoral boards and stuff so that they can do a... Uh, legal nullification of votes next time. And I got to tell you, I don't think that has anything to do with uh, a 1-6. It, it, that is happened going to happen independently of that. The, the, the spectacular expression, the one that we fixate on, is the least important. It's the most epiphenomenal. The, one that, the thing that matters is the structural ratchet of the Republican Party 
using its minoritarian levers of control to nullify the threat of being voted out of office by the fact that they do represent a rump of voters. But that process has been going on unimpeded for 20 years. And if they do steal an election the way people are freaking out, it will not be a coup. It will be Bush v. Gore all over again. And if that wasn't a coup, I'm sorry, I don't know how you can say that this one will be, just because it's Trump instead of a guy who paid his dues because he was a president's son who had been governor of Texas or something, and they all look like normal politicians, so it's okay. I mean, my God, people were talking about how horrifying it was that the Democrats were all shaking Dick Cheney's hand in the, in the House yesterday because of what he did with Iraq and everything. He did a fucking coup! He stole an election! He did the thing that all these people are freaking out about! I think the desire for there to be some kind of coup is the same desire for there to be some sort of climate apocalypse. It's the desire for a rupture of our constraining reality that will somehow free us. We don't know how because we can't imagine it. Capitalist realism again. But it would be different. It would be fundamentally different. Our lives would be fundamentally different. And even if they were worse in some objective sense, the familiar miseries that we have become locked into would be obviated. And that is what people want. That's what people want out of a coup. That's what people want out of climate change. That's what people want out of COVID. And that's just not likely to happen. If there's going to be a apocalypse, it has to be individual. It has to be internal. You have to do it yourself. You have to push through the veil yourself. You can't wait for them to do it for you. Because there's no incentive in the system to allow that to happen. It's all up to us to decide what is too much and then act accordingly to change our conditions of consent. But I understand why that's scary and impossible because we are locked into this. Like The, peop the, the thing that fascinates me about the, the real doom heads about democracy, like democracy's over, is that all they want to do is make other people feel like them. Not with the idea that it's going to lead to anything. I really don't think they believe that. I think the more clear-eyed ones understand that, well, fuck, I think democracy is ending. I think it's a crisis. And yet all I'm doing is the same thing everybody else is doing, which is doing my job, posting to vent stress, but otherwise waiting for the asteroid to hit. Realistically, logically, that means that even if I, my communication is effective and I get other people to feel as deeply as I do that we are in a crisis, all you're going to have is another person or another group of people with that emotional energy but doing the same thing, allowing the thing to happen.
And I honestly think more than that, more even than wanting other people to feel as you do, the real motivation is to have a consolation for if it actually happens. And that consolation will be the ability to say, as the lights dim, I told you so. That is really what people who cultivate their anxiety and their Cassandra visions of catastrophe are doing. They, like we all are, feel completely locked into being a scared rabbit waiting for the end, only able to console ourselves with the uh, with with the minor pleasures that we have become addicted to because it's all we know. Uh, but then consoling ourselves with the knowledge that we understand something that the masses don't and that our enemies don't and that the people we don't like don't. Which means that if we have even our momentary fleeting barely uh, sufficient pleasures taken from us, we will have at least the compensating pleasure of knowing we were right. And that seems, you say, that seems like an absurd thing. But when you consider the degree to which, and I'm not, I'm talking about myself here, obviously, self-worth when you feel like you're not in control of your life, when you feel like you are a cog, as we all do, when you feel like the human uh, urge towards self-definition that is uh, denied us at this stage of capitalism and has left us uh, unable to express those animal urges the, uh, and made us compensate with, with treats, and when I say treats, I don't mean, oh, snacks. I mean, I mean the, uh, the aesthetic compensations of, of life in the habit trail. Uh, and one of the big ones for the overeducated, overproduced elite of this country, which is most college-educated people under 40, I would say, uh, is building a worldview building an identity around perception of the world around us and curating it and validating ourselves by by cherishing and 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 uh, fixating on the difference between our understanding of the world around us and what we perceive as general understandings of the world Like, I might not, I might be filled with self-loathing because I feel that I am trapped. I might feel like I've been thwarted in any attempt to, uh, to really define my life by, my, by anything other than the terms of capital, like everybody else. But unlike everybody else, I know that why this is happening, or I feel like I know why this is happening, and I know where it's headed. That is a real thing. That that's that's a genuine element of self-interest. Is is that 
sense of self. And this is why I talk a lot about how you can't speak to the self-interests of capitalists as people as being purely their material self-interest. Because nobody's self-interest is uh, simply a material thing. It is filtered through a whole bunch of self-perceptions that are as deeply held and as powerful a source of pleasure as material security, wealth, uh, Epicurean delights are. And so that means that you can feel like you are at the last days of a dying empire. You can feel like even formal democracy is about to be obliterated. You can feel like you have no way to stop it. But you can still feel every day like I can go on in these conditions because I know what they don't. And more importantly, if the day comes, I can tell everyone that I told them so. I guarantee fucking to you that if there is a coup, an actual one, like proud boys armed by the state in the streets to nullify an election, caravan of death, Chile 73 type stuff, like literal helicopter rides. As long as the internet exists before it gets like cut off by the government or whatever and people are still able to post, the vast majority of posts of the people who are the most alarmed about that possibility are not going to be about how to resist it. They're going to say, I fucking told you people. You laughed at me. You fucking irony-pilled dipshits. Oh, you didn't think this was a big deal, huh? Where are you now? What do you think now? Before it gets cut off. That'll be the last thing that... That'll be the... That will be... Uh, like the creed de corps. I told you so. Which is what happens when your self-perception is not as an agent of, of history, not as a being with will and the ability to exert it, but as a passive critic, which is the role that we have all, a lot of us, have instinctively taken given the paucity of options. But I think the funniest thing is that after all that fretting and shit, the trajectory we're on would be Trump getting reelected without there needing to be any shenanigans. Probably not a popular vote victory, but at this point, that's been, who cares? But, like, basically the same map as uh, 2016. Without anybody falsifying any uh, votes or stopping counting or any of that shit. The cyber ninjas being engaged. Because the Democrats 
our shock of shocks, who could have perceived, who could have seen this coming? See, here's me being smug about something. Here's me being to be able to be like, aha, I told you, instead of doing anything about it. The Democrats, incapable of governing in a crisis. Oh, man, I got red lights on my streamer thing and everything. Okay, there's a green light. That should be better. Like I said, apologies. This is stolen internet for now. Yeah, it's uh, it sure is a hell of a thing, huh? It's pretty wacky what's going on. Hell of a thing. Okay, good. The audio's fine, just don't look at me. Don't look at me, Max Hedrum out. I can see the chat. The chat's going, so that's good. Oh, uh, somebody wants me to ask, uh, say, to speak on the D and D episodes and ask, if, say, if Jack and Pat did a good job. Jack and Pat did a great job, and of course, Chris did an amazing job editing it. I am the least valuable uh, appendage of the show when we do D and D stuff. I am most uh, appreciative for everybody else when we do D and D because I honestly have never gotten a handle for it. I had more time, fun this time because I was just a barbarian who didn't have to talk or think too much, but just, I realized it's, I cannot, as somebody pointed this out to me, I, and it really nailed me. I'm very bad at chess. I, I'm like supernaturally bad at chess. I will do moves that are just incomprehensibly bad that I just literally don't see when I do them. And I realize what it is, is that I am so agonized by the choice to make a move that I subconsciously steer my pieces into oblivion. I basically am death-driven while I play these games because I don't get any pleasure out of making a decision. I only get anxiety out of it. So I just want it to be over as soon as possible. That's also why I'm not a gamer. I am, I think one of the reasons that I was able to put together this absurd quote-unquote career as a, uh, as a personality, even though I don't really have any talent, is that I embody the, more than I guess most, in, in terms of like perfectly embodying, the, the condition of paralyzed self-consciousness. And then that gives me the ability to speak on that condition and to try to articulate how it feels. But that's it. Like, I can't do anything else. I can't, I can't make decisions. You know, I can't engage myself. So I do what is left, which is critique.
And that's like worth very little except as entertainment. And I'm, I'm fortunate that some are entertained by it. Uh, see, like uh, the book, for example. Very hard for me to write because as soon as I have something written down, I'm looking at it. And as soon as I'm looking at it, I'm being paralyzed by the idea that it's bad and wrong and that it's going to be uh, annihilated. I'm trying, though. We'll see. Like, extemporaneous speaking works because it's gone as I say it. There's no uh, remaining vestige. It's, it's entirely contained in, in the moment of expression. So there's not the, the chance, the, the necessity of going over it and, and, and contemplating it and then being gripped by uh, uncertainty about it. But I, I'm, I'm trying. I have some. I think. I think I'm getting. I honestly feel like what I've been the project of putting together the next history podcast with Chris has been very good at at focusing a lot. And I honestly am starting to wonder if that's going to be how the shape it takes. Uh, but we'll see. Like the contours of uh, of early Protestantism in the age of the uh, printing press to me are fascinating because I genuinely believe that we are in a similar period. Like obviously history is a cycle, right? It's, it's cyclical. And you see throughout human history these inflection points where one condition is slowly changed over time. It's not stable. It's stable in a broad sense, but changes are accumulating over time that eventually reach an inflection point and a crisis point, and then something else occurs. And all the people who are living in that moment don't know what they're building because by definition, they can't. They only have lived lives under certain conditions and can only operate from the assumptions of those conditions. But the crisis that they live amongst is making them, forcing them to make choices that are building new structures that they aren't even able to recognize. And then their children and their children grow up in a literally different world. And I feel like the the moment of the Reformation, the early seventeenth, the early sixteenth century, in Europe, is a similar moment as the one we're living in now. In that, a type of human subjectivity is in a technologically and materially imposed crisis, and it is we are in the process of creating a new human subjectivity. The abstracted uh, internal culturated uh, identity that mass literacy produced 
is, in my opinion, more than anything, what produced Protestantism. Christianity, faith, which was necessary for life, in the absence of anything else, could no longer be sustained through social practice alone. When you have literacy, reading, and uh, modern urban life, and it, everyone's brain broke. I mean, if you look at uh, the history of the of the, of the long crisis from the six, from fifth, from uh, the early fifteen hundreds until the uh, late sixteenth century, seventeenth century, you're seeing this polity reformate, reformat its uh, mental hard drive and create a new subjectivity. Uh, and we are in that process now. And the material driver in both cases is fucking climate change. In the case of uh, uh, early modern Europe, the onset of the Little Ice Age, which fatally undermined, in many cases, literally, the, uh, the ecological conditions that had allowed sort of uh, post-Black Death feudalism to be resurrected. Uh, uh, you had an intense warming period in the in the in the post Black Death uh, generations, and then in the mid fifteen hundreds, going into the sixteen uh, hundreds, you see this significant drop in, in temperatures that causes significant damage to agricultural productivity. At the very same time that people are living in their heads in a way they never had before. And I think that that is where we are now. That was the, that was the final crisis of feudalism interacting with an exogenous shock and then being disrupted. And in that disruption, we created the coping mechanisms, the things that resolve those old contradictions and created new contradictions, which is liberal secular capitalism, exported it around the world, and now, at the end of that process, the industrial uh, technology that we use to do it has destabilized our atmosphere, destabilized our, uh, our ecology, and once again interfered with the assumed conditions of production that had allowed the previous social organizations to exist at the exact same time that a new human subjectivity is being created by mass computer literacy. Because going from a uh, largely illiterate uh, social culture to a literate, uh, internal, abstracted, cloud-based, like when you're reading about Luther and about, about the Augsburg Confession or whatever the fuck, uh, and you're reading pamphlets about how the Pope is the Antichrist, you are participating in a imagined social reality, and you are imagining yourself as a, a synthetic being within that reality that did not exist before literacy, at least not in the intensity, cannot be reproduced and reinscribed through the act, the literal act of sitting and reading the way that it could before.
And now we have reached the point where we are literally, we are like in a, in a fundamental sense living virtually. The, the, the same abstraction as literacy, but taken to a more intensified technological level, which is degrees of difference reaching an inflection point. Like, people said the same shit I'm saying about uh, the advent of motion pictures and uh, television. And you had Marshall McLuhan talking about uh, the medium and the message and all that stuff uh, in, in, the, in the glory days of, uh, of uh, the post-Cold War uh, consensus. And that, that was a shift. That was an intensification. But it was within a stabilized uh, uh, relationship that was then fatally destabilized by a f- another level. A thing that is taking that process of abstraction and bringing it to, to an even more intensified level. To the point where inflection is reached. And we're no longer the same people that even our parents were, or our grandparents were. But we're all living at the same time together under conditions created by those previous generations. And that causes significant crisis, cultural crisis, that is exacerbated then by material crisis. And that is why I want to talk about uh, that moment, because... It's, it's what we've all been trying to do and what I've been trying to do with writing and talking about this stuff is describe this moment as it's happening. But the very the, the thing is about that limitation of it is that because you're in it, you can't know what's being what's being you can't know where the track is being lain. Really, you can imagine, but you are still that previous thing you are or at best a transitional fossil. You are not the thing that's being brought into being. I am, I am, I'm old, man. I grew up without the internet as a little kid. I was not digitally limited, uh, digitally literate. I remember coming in to fucking junior high and seeing those fucking little Macintoshes and, uh, hell, elementary school playing Oregon Trail in Carmen San Diego. I remember the ER of American Online going, uh, booting up. And I remember being able to, to, to I remember... It's it taking 10 minutes to download the NFL.com homepage, which for some reason is the first one I tried to look at. I was a football fan as a teenager. And I just went to NFL.com, and I remember sitting at the TV, the screen and watching it slowly fill over the course of 10 minutes and just thinking, what is the point of this? So I am, I've been warped deeply by my encounter with technology uh, like, I got dropped into the toxic waste dump like uh, Emil and Robocop and emerged a different, more monstrous creature. But that experience means that I am not fully of this new reality. And I can't really communicate with those who are because we have a different vocabulary. We have a different understanding of language. This is this is Kuhnian incommensurability we're talking about. So while I am fascinated by this moment, I feel like I've kind of reached the point where I can no longer speak too incisively about the specific Kurt, uh, you know, contrails of this largely because of how stuck it feels. Now, of course that feeling of stuckness is only subjective. 
if they are historians in the near far future, they will see the moment we're in not as a moment of stuckness. They will see it as part of a of a significant uh, crisis. But most crises are perceived within them at certain points until they aren't as stasis. And that means that we're not really able to say much about what is to be done. So instead, I'm trying to look backward at, a, at another moment where this sort of alchemical uh, transition occurred and see how that happened uh, just to give the solace of a familiarity, if nothing else. And the thing about the uh, this period that I'm really honing in on, more than the Reformation itself, uh, although I find it, you know, obviously fascinating. Uh, and, like, the, the way that uh, the frontiers of the Reformation were pushed past what Luther wanted uh, in every direction is really interesting to look at. Like, materially, you had the peasants of Germany who took what he said to mean, oh, yeah, these earthly uh, rulers are not legitimate. If the church that upholds this order is illegitimate, then the uh, temporal power that they uh, you that they express in the name of God is illegitimate. Uh, and so you saw the the German peasant war, which of course Luther, a increasingly fat, comfortable uh, monk whose entire uh, life was uh, at the pleasure of rich patrons the elector of Saxony specifically, who kept him alive after the Diet of Worms and kept him uh, in sausages and, and pumpernickel. Uh, wasn't going to disrupt, so he, dis- he, he uh, denied the uh, peasants the validity of their revolt. But they were put down materially, and they were put down by force, and, and, and that kind of let everybody know the limits of, of, of a challenge to authority coming from that. But then you have those who took the, uh, the theology further, like first the Calvinists, uh, and then, you know, the Anabaptists and all of the splinter groups and, and, and uh, weirdos who emerged in, in that moment trying to figure out how to make sense of a world where socially affirmed religion could no longer be taken for granted where we are now these abstract Christians with a personal relationship to God, whatever the fuck that means, how do you have a personal relationship to God? How are you not looking in a mirror? And of course, that question is what creates modern neuroses. All modern neuroses spring from that breach because you could know God by looking around you, but once that's no longer the case, once you can only know God from looking within, then you can never know God. Because you can only look in the mirror. And that's why eventually all the, the only way to the only thing to do is take this neurosis and secularize it so that the salute answers to it could be found within the market. 
could be found within our structures of social oppression and exploitation uh, and not out and not uh, outside of it, because if it's outside of it, then we might become fatally alienated to the system and attack it. So instead, we abstracted everything into the, that realm, and that's and it made everything. It made a instead of a collective pursuit of the truth, which is what the early Protestants tried to create, just like the early Christians that they were emulating did. You had an individual pursuit, which can only be pursued where through the market, through individual competition with others. Uh, as a homo economicus, and that's what we've been stuck with. And it is the inability to resolve that crisis that has created a runaway suicide uh, uh, imperative within capitalism. Like People say capitalism is a death cult, and that is true in the broad sense that you know, we are carrying out a global social project whose uh, encoded aim, not our understanding of it, but the actual programming is of planetary suicide. But unlike a cult where everyone within it un- has some understanding of what is going on and is participating in it, who is saying we are moving towards a goal, we have the opposite situation where everybody is moving towards an individual goal. And because we are doing that, the only collective pursuit we can actually engage in is our annihilation, which is what we're trying to do. But of all this, of all this entire era and this entire phenomenon, uh, right now the thing that I am focusing on and most interested in is the uh, court of Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. Uh, in the run-up to the Thirty Years' War. Because it, to me, strikes the most harmonic resonances with the moment we're living in. Because you had a situation where religious tensions within the Holy Roman Empire had been cranking up for years. The legitimacy of the the empire's institutions, its courts, its diets were being undermined because of this snake in the garden of uh, religious sex, uh, sectoralism. You had Lutheran, you, you, had, uh, you had the Catholic Habsburgs and their Catholic allies. You had the Lutherans, like the Saxons, and all the one, those who patronized Luther. But then you also had these renegade Calvinists who were not recognized by the uh, Peace of Augsburg of 1555, which had after a number of wars between the Catholic and Protestant powers of the empire, the Smalkaldic Wars, uh, they basically did what the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire was designed to do, which is kick the can down the road, if this feels, sounds familiar at all. And to say, we can't resolve this conflict without open violence, so instead we are just going to leave things as they are and come back to it later. And so uh, the Peace of Augsburg recognized the idea that any... Uh, uh, territorial prince had the right to impose their religion on their area of control. Uh, whose, rule, whose rule, whose religion was the rule? Basically recognizing the conditions as they had been, uh, uh, that had come out of the small Caldic Wars, which were stalemate. 
The first Smokaldic War ended in a triumphant Habsburg victory. The second Smokaldic War, though, saw Charles V get chased out of Vienna. And so they called basically a truce. But that truce only recognized the Lutherans. Because Calvinism, which was more of a threat to centralized authority, more of a threat to traditional authorities, because it decoupled the state from its ability to uh, dictate clergy. Because Luther, who was the most conservative of the, Luther, of, the, of the Protestants, because he was the first, I believe, in Lutheranism, the relationship between uh, church and state was basically kept as it had been under Catholicism. The only difference was, instead of uh, the Pope exercising authority uh, uh, on church matters, that, that authority was transferred to the secular ruler, which is why so many princes, it took a while, but pretty soon after the, the Luther started talking, uh, a lot of secular princes who wanted more authority, who chafed under the, the rule of the, of the empire, uh, who wanted and chafed under the rule of the fucking uh, church itself, started adopting Lutheranism because it said, now you, you, we, get to, we have solved the investiture crisis that had, uh, you know, uh, cut through Christendom all during the high Middle Ages by giving the secular prince full authority. And, of course, they jumped at it. But Calvin, the Calvinists, and, of course, this is not a coincidence, by the way, that Luther survives as a heretic, which he was, uh, in the bosom of a territorial lord, Frederick the Wise, elector of Saxony. And he, of course, then promulgates Lutheranism, which says secular lords should determine ecclesiastical offices in accordance, of course, with their people. And Calvin, who went to the renegade uh, city-state of Geneva, which is now in Switzerland, but what is that? what was at that point had just recently overthrown the rule of the Duke of Savoy and become an independent city, a free city. And we're looking for direction, what to do. Like, we're now sovereign, and, and, and now religion is up for grabs. What do we do? And it was there that Luther, or that Kelvin, promulgates his notion of uh, a lay... Uh, ecclesiastic authority. Church separate from the state and controlled by its members. With the state as a guarantor, with the state as uh, made up of members of the church, but as a separate entity. Which, of course, was hot. It's nothing that uh, like the landed princes of Europe wanted to hear, but what was very resonant in the ears of the independent cities of early modern Europe, which chafed under the rule of territorial lords and wanted their own independence. And it's not a coincidence that Calvinism, once he starts writing and the writing starts spreading across Western Europe, resonates in the most uh, urbanized parts of Western Europe. Of course, in Eastern Europe, the only place that takes up Calvinism is rural Transylvania, but that's a different story because of different conditions. But in Western Europe, in France and the Low Countries and the Rhineland, Urban areas picked up Calvinism. And so you see the United the, 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 the Dutch 
revolting against Spanish Habsburg rule to enforce their version of a reformed church. The Huguenots of France fight against the Catholics of uh, of uh, France and mostly get their asses kicked. But Cal- but but um, uh, but the Huguenots were disproportionately traitors and urbanites. And people who lived in their heads, people who lived abstractly. And so by the early 1600s, which is exactly when the Little Ice Age really kicks into gear, when the sun literally dims, the sun goes, somebody turns the dimmer switch on the sun in the early 1600s. At exactly that moment, you have this uh, electoral prince of Germany, which is the highest rank of uh, nobility within the Holy Roman Empire. Because you have, obviously, just hundreds and hundreds of, uh, of uh, secular and ecclesiastical uh, princes. You've got individual knights holding small fiefs. The Holy Roman Empire is just this riot of, of degrees of nobility. But at the very top of that are these seven electors who elect collectively the Holy Roman Emperor. Three of them were um, ecclesiastical rulers, the archbishops of Cologne, Mainz, and uh, is it Trier? I can't remember the other one. And then you've got the electors of uh, Brandenburg, Saxony, and the Palatine. The Palatine, which is uh, the Rhineland north of Bavaria, or northwest of Bavaria. And the as I said, the Augsburg Treaty recognized de facto Catholicism and Lutheranism, but Calvinism was still technically heresy. And in Heidelberg, Frederick the Elector Palatine, with his trusted buddy Christian of Anhalt, and his uh, I got his last name. I got to look it up to get his last name right because it's very funny. I th- I think he might have made it up. A lot of those guys did that. Uh, Abraham Skultetis, the um, the the top uh, Calvinist theologian of uh, of the Palatinate, uh, they set about creating in Heidelberg a successor to Geneva as the capital of uh, Reformed Christianity in Europe. And they spent the run-up to the Thirty Years' War while the uh, Bohemian estates were revolting against the imposition of uh, Catholicism in Bohemia. They're building this narrative to themselves that Frederick V, who was a himbo, basically, but who had a very strategic marriage to the uh, daughter of the King of England, James I, um... They imagine, thanks in part to having read anonymous tracts from a group called the Rosicrucians about a, a secret group of, uh, of godly men who were bringing about the apocalypse, thanks in part to reading those guys, and of course reading the Bible through the lens of their own self-interest, decide that Frederick V is the prophesized monarch who will overthrow the devil on earth and bring about the end of the world. And 
due to that belief, they did a thing that no other uh, prince in Europe would have tried because of how dangerous it would have been, which is accept the renegade Bohemian's offer of the crown of the of the kingdom of Bohemia in the face of the literally just elected Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II. And that started 30 years of warshed that destroyed uh, Germany in large chunks. And to me, this is, a, this is a recognizable social and political phenomenon. And so if we can look at what that leads, we can, I don't know, at least be entertained. I can't make too many claims. But anyway, I think it's very interesting. So that's what I've been working on. And maybe I'll put some of it down in paper, hopefully. But my, the most interesting thing to me about this progression I said that goes from Lutheranism, right? Ecclesiastical lords appointed, appointed by uh, earthly princes, basically keeping the social structure as it is, with its society of orders, with its exploitation, you know, with its, with its still, feudalism is in crisis here and it's decomposing, but it would be recognized as a continuity. So let's call it feudalism. And then you had Calvinism, which takes root in the cities, where capitalism is not yet existent, but we are in this fluid state. Capitalism is being built in bits and pieces, uh, largely in the, the, I believe, uh, along with Elaine Wood uh, and Brenner, that largely being uh, created in, in uh, rural England, but also, obviously, in the, in the Dutch Low Countries, in the... Uh, in the Rhine, the, 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 the commercial centers of the Rhineland, I mean, Augsburg is also, it's where you had the peace of, uh, it's where the peace was signed in 1555, uh, or, and that's where the uh, Lutheran confession uh, was promulgated, and it's also where the Fugger family uh, lent all the money to the uh, Habsburgs that kept the whole thing going. In these areas, uh, Calvinism and its notion of an individual uh, an individualized Christianity, a personal relationship with God that is not socially reaffirmed the way Catholicism had been, that allows for commercial interaction, that says we can treat each other as strangers in a neutral marketplace. We do not have to recognize each other as Christians the way that you had to do in medieval feudal Europe, medieval feudal Catholic Europe. We can now really be strangers. And, it, and it's, it, is a, it is an understanding of Christianity that better conforms to the, the lived existence of a urban market participant. So all of these are accommodations with the changing conditions of feudalism and final crisis. But then you add the one move, the one push past that has no support within the existing structure and therefore cannot sustain itself as an independent political force. And that is Anabaptism. So one of the chief insights of Luther that gets the whole Reformation going is that he says, hey, you know, you got all these sacraments of the Catholic Church, right? These things that you do for us, this contract, the thing that binds us to you, we go to heaven if we do these things, these seven sacraments. It's weird. None of them are in the Bible, dude. 
Bible is the book of God, right? Nothing in here about uh, the Eucharist or any of this shit and all these rites and stuff. Where are you getting this? And of course, where they're getting it is this is a fucking social technology. It's not in your head. This was created by a preliterate fucking feudal order. It has to be reinforced by ritual. Ah, duh. But of course, these people now, those rituals are now constraining. There are chains on their neck as they're trying to participate in this rapidly shifting economic order. They don't have a name for it yet. It's not coherent, but it's not the rural rhythm that had facilitated Catholic Europe. So Luther gets rid of a bunch of the sacraments, says these aren't in the Bible, you don't have to do them. Then the Calvinists go a little further and they say, actually, you know what? There's even more. For example, Luther says, fuck all these sacraments except for infant baptism and the Eucharist. I think the Eucharist, that's real stuff. There's a presence. I don't know what you want to call it. I don't think it's transubstantiation, but there's a presence in the Eucharist. It's worth, it's meaningful. Then Calvin says, fuck you. What are you talking about? It's a cookie. It's wine. Get over yourself. But the thing is, well, so they get in an argument, right, about, and this forms part of the big real conflict between Calvinists and Lutherans uh, that uh, leads to a lot of strife during the Second Reformation where the, the Calvinists try to convert the Lutherans and the Lutherans resist, comes down to this question of the, the Eucharist and of communion. And the Calvinists have on their side the fact that, hey, this isn't in the Bible. But Luther, of course, has his own justification, but at the end of the day, it's motivated reasoning. He wants to keep the Eucharist because it's socially useful. Because in his imagined still feudal order, having a church that dispenses Eucharist is socially, technologically useful. So he can make up whatever reason he wants. That's the real reason that the Eucharist stayed for Luther. Now, the city-based Calvinists who uh, maintain uh, social coercion through the market now more and more than they do through uh, uh, like imbu- uh, 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 religiously imbued social ro- roles, they say, no, fuck the Eucharist. But infant baptism is also not in the Bible. The same arguments that the Calvinists made about the Eucharist apply to infant baptism, but Calvin didn't touch it. Because infant baptism was the ritual of affirmation of the existing social contract. And when I say existing, I mean not an existing religious understanding of the world, not an existing uh, 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 sectarian understanding, or even geographically fixed understanding, an understanding of oneself in an economic order, as in the one who tills the land, or the one who rides a horse, or the one who counts the coins, the real social structure that animates all of this, that keeps the lights on, that keeps the torches burning, the feudo, capito, early modern social order, where feudalism, as in serfdom, is largely abolished in large sections of Europe in the Holy Roman Empire. Basically, the further west you go, 
or the further east you go in Europe, the more serfs there are. In, 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 I mean, Spain is kind of resurfaced in the 1700s because of the currency crisis of the New World silver mines. But uh, like in the center of Europe, large percentages, and in the Low Countries and in England, large percentages of uh, farmers are no longer serfs with feudal ties to the land and, and feudal obligations. They are tenants or outright yeoman owners. So that is a difference than feudalism, but they're still operating in a system where uh, land-based rights and money surplus is accumulated to owners. And of course, there that circulation creates uh, the uh, urban economy, but it's all part of a, a greater economic order. And infant baptism is your... Um, assimilation into that order. Here, you are a member of Christendom, which means that if your dad was a farmer, you're a farmer. You work the land. We do that. We do religion. We we go. We do uh, warfare. Uh, but you you work the fucking land, and. In return, you go to heaven. Like, that is the real uh, bargain being swapped here. This this is the religious bargain. You're going to get protected. You're not going to get killed by ra- ra- raiders. We have, we you will be secure. And so you will be able to, like, get the mere pleasures of life, even as a, you know, broken back peasant. And there are pleasures of life in every condition, even if it's just the temporary relief of suffering, and that's enough to get people by. And then there is a greater reward in the in the hereafter. And that'll keep you farming, which keeps the lords in their uh, castles, and it keeps the city people in their counting houses. So every type of terrestrial order in the hierarchy, from uh, city lords or uh, city burghers, uh, rural aristocrats and the dynasties above them all have a vested interest in affirming a, a basic social order and being able to bring people into it and know that they have that uh, ideological and identity investment in it. Authority is the word I'm looking for. Infant baptism is an affirmation of the authority of the existing power structure, which is still a a, a corporate thing. So no mainstream reformer made the same critique of infant baptism that Luther and Calvin between them had made of all the other ones. Because if you did, they would kill you. In Geneva, they literally drowned the Anabaptists as like an ironic punishment. They drown him in the fucking river. Because that was the line. Because Protestantism is dissolving social bonds, but only those that are allowed to be sundered. The Lutheran lords allowed him to sever the connection between the church and their lands because it was in their interest. The cities allowed the further severance of connections to landed authority. But nobody is going to cut their own throat like that. And so Anabaptism 
became a heresy that anywhere you went would get you killed. If you went to the Catholic lands, which obviously, but if you went to uh, Lutheran lands, if you went to a Calvinist city, you were going to get killed if you talked too much about how there's nothing about baptizing infants in the Bible, and you should get to fucking choose to join a community of believers. You should make your own decision as to what order you will obey. Nope. That happens to you at birth. And so the closest thing you see to temporal exercise of power by Anabaptists, those who take Protestantism, the Protestant Reformation to its logical conclusion of we're going to bring heaven on earth by living as Christians. These institutions don't allow us to live as Christians. Now, you come to terms with those limits because you're either getting fed like Luther or you're getting hanged like uh, uh, Thomas Munster and the uh, German peasants. Carrot and stick keep you in line along some tension with a state that does not allow Christian living. The Anabaptists, by rejecting the entire social control technology of Christianity, were able to try to actually assert a Christian livelihood on the earth in a major city, which they took over. They were invested by the local archbishop, uh, starved, uh, and then eventually massacred. And of course, what happens at, when they are uh, uh, laid siege to is very predictably a descent into theocratic madness, mass execution of heretics, also mass uh, uh, sexual licentiousness, polygamy, uh, uh, public sex, uh, uh, Bashian uh, ni- nightmarish rebels, because they have been, they're being starved. Because the conditions to allow for the material persistence of that community are deprived of them. And so, of course, it descends. And the fact that it descended was used by secular princes and uh, religious ones across Europe to say, this is why you don't do that. This is why there's no Anabaptism. This is why you don't get to pick that. Because you're going to end up mass marrying and fornicating and guaranteeing that you go to hell. But of course, it's only because they were suffocated by the existing uh, powers that be, just as communism was suffocated by its, the encircling capital liberals' uh, secular uh, successor to uh, Protestantism that by that point ruled the world, just as Christian sort of uh, feudo-capitalism ruled early modern Europe. Because both of them sought to live as Christians. Communism, socialism, the dream of it is the dream of a Christian republic. I'm sorry, it is. I don't know if that makes things... uh, But I don't think that's a problem because a Christian republic is, in my mind, the same as uh, any sort of end state of social tranquility in any other uh, cultural and religious context. It's the same thing. It comes out of a Christian tradition because, as I said, we're locked into the social structures that the previous generations built. History lays like a nightmare on the heads of the living. But 
We're also building something new. Now, Marx's imagining of how this would go about that didn't require religion, that said religion would go away, imagined a situation where in the early 20th century, capitalism is overthrown and humanity, the entirety of it, can build socialism together. Now, of course, that's going to be a violent process. It's going to kill a lot of people. It's going to lead to starvation and misery. But it's going to also build something. And it's going to build people. It's going to build a new human experience, a human subjectivity, a furthering of the process that we saw built, explode all throughout the development of capitalism. A new human spirit that encompasses humanity and that identifies humanity with God, not the self with God as Protestantism did. Because that is Protestantism. The world can no longer really be God because I'm alienated from it too critically, so I am God. The only two things I know are real. The world as I perceive it and myself. Two things that are not separate, but I imagine are separate. They're the only things I can believe in. The process of building world communism would give birth to a new human subjectivity that turned God into humanity. And then, of course, into the entire biosphere. And it would be a process of building. And that means that instead of the uh, prolonged deprivation experienced by cut-off attempts to build such a thing, like the premature Anabaptists of Munster and the similarly premature Bolsheviks of the Soviet Union, In those conditions, the social structures that emerge are going to be poisoned at the root because you can't build anything. You are cannibalizing. And that is what the Soviet Union was. Yes, the Soviet Union was a miracle of human endeavor. They built a modern country out of a feudal uh, uh, throwback within a few generations. But it was a cannibalistic effort. They ate their own peasant class. They chewed them up and spit them out. And you can say that had to happen. It did have to happen. But communism shouldn't have done it. Capitalism should have done it. As it did it in Europe, as it was doing it across the world. Now, if you'd had, as Marx and most... uh, and Marx and Lenin and Trotsky imagined if you had a situation after World War I where capitalism was overthrown, there's still so much fucking bounty of the world at that point. There is so much unprocessed, unused energy. There is so, uh, there's so much carbon left to be spewed into the atmosphere, right? That all the violence and all the conflict and all the misery that we would have gone through in the 20th century would have still happened but in a different way, building different institutions, different subjective experiences of those institutions. And gotten to a point where everybody is working towards this thing. Now, maybe you'll never get there because you are living bound by history and by material conditions that might change in a way you can't anticipate, but my God, you can move towards it. 
And everybody within a social order can imagine that their worth as a person comes from being part of this project. What we got instead because of the failure of communism is this suicide, this death drive of the Protestant ego in conditions of scarcity. We are now all in Anabaptist Munster. We are now all in the Soviet Union. We are now being suffocated and surrounded by a capitalism that is all-encompassing and that is no longer territorially based. It has been, it has transcended spatial domination and become God. It has become a living God surrounding us. We no longer make history. Instead, all we do is, as the Anabaptists did in Munster and as the Soviets did, Try to build something through cannibalism, but only destroying ourselves by cannibalizing. But that process causes a breakdown of institutions. It accumulates contradictions that cannot be accommodated. Because as I said, no one is working towards annihilation. Everybody wants the world to keep going. There is no, I don't really believe that there are any like comic book super villains who really want the world to end, want to live in a bunker. Like they, even the ones who imagine, oh, I'm going to go to the moon, or I'm going to go to Mars, or I'm going to go to the bunker. I don't think most of them want that. And even the ones who want to go to Mars, well, I can go to Mars even if the world doesn't end. They don't want the world to end. They're working towards it. We're all working towards it, but we're not doing that consciously. What we're doing is working towards our self-interest as we imagine it. We are worshiping God. We are worshiping ourselves as God. And that practice of worship is to look out for number one in a material way that has the effect of hastening the apocalypse. The unrevealing, but not the unrevealing of our Christian humanity, the unveiling of our damned nature. Not the, uh, not the opening of the pearly gates in heaven, but of the... Uh, crossing of the river sticks into hell. What that means is that the long-term viability of the social technologies that allow for capitalism to flourish are being undermined. Because we're not just destroying the world, we're also destroying the institutions we're part of in the same way, with the same self-interest. Like members of the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, too. They're all digging their own graves. We're all digging our own graves because we don't know what else to do. That's what every generation does. Every crisis empire, that every empire that faces a usually climate-based crisis and collapses does so because everybody is going towards what they think God wants. What that looks like is different in every culture, but what God wants is just a reflection of the collective self-interest of this unaggregated humanity that is separated by regimes of domination. The fact that you have surplus creators and surplus enjoyers. You are creating a fractured human community that can only respond schizophrenically to crisis. Because somebody digs and somebody enjoys. Somebody, somebody 
farms and somebody eats. And that creates different worlds, different emotional worlds, different emotional understandings of their self-interest, what the world is, their understandings of God. And so every civilization hastens its own destruction because worshiping that God, that God is just the political and social and economic order you live under. That's the God you're actually animating with your actions. And that social order was built under certain conditions, material conditions. And it doesn't know how to work any other way. If you change the equation in the algorithm, if you change X to Y in terms of inputs, amount of calories, basically, it cannot function. But nobody within it can recognize it because they're stuck by it. That is why Marx's Messiah, Marx's second coming, Marx's Messiah, because remember, he was a Jew and a Christian, both of which are premised on an apocalyptic revelation of a Messiah. For Christians, for Jews, it is an, it is an unrealized ideal. For Christians, it's Jesus. For Marx, is the working class. Because what the working class can do, by their self-interests coming into alignment against the system, in conscious conflict with it, you can build a social order, a social mechanism that can take these crisis conditions that undermine the machine and build a new machine because it's no longer being oppressed effectively because everybody within these institutions is undermining them. Everybody working within every company, every political party in the world right now is destroying their own system. But they don't know they're doing that. They don't know that their self-interest in conditions of declining material, because this thing was built on our selfishness. And when you have unlimited inputs, the machine works. Everybody gets, to the degree they can make a demand of the material world, they can get paid off. So a worker in uh, the dominated colony gets nothing, gets a gun to the head and enough food to keep going. But a worker in the center of the core gets, at the height of this, the lifestyle they see on TV. What rich people live like. Material pleasure and abundance. The only thing I know to be worth seeking, because it's the only thing I am given as a value for that. And of course, the higher up you get, the more they get to demand. The more demands, the demands are met as much as they need to. And then, if they can't afford to be uh, met, those who resist are destroyed. And because they're only resisting individually, they can be isolated and annihilated. It's self-cleaning unit. It is an organism. It is a system of systems. It is immortal until that material condition changes. Under conditions of scarcity, everybody acting in their own best interest in the short term means that all of that social faith that we have in these institutions that gets, keeps us going and that informs our understanding of ourselves and what our self-interests are, and how we align them with things like the country, or capitalism, or America. These abstractions that we had connected previously to our own best interests, 
because they were aligned. In the 20th century, the, like this social and political order was built on the premise that the average American citizen would look at the world, look at America, defined as its institutions, its capitalist institutions, and say, we have the same interests, and then act accordingly. But that's because their demands were met. And the people whose demands were not met, they don't know those people. They're divided by class, by geography, by race more than anything. I don't know them. Fuck them. Now, of course, because they've been able to annihilate that disillusionment, alienation, that Marx was premising his theory on, and which did rack the world in the early 20th century. World War One to World War II is the second 30 years war where you replace Protestantism with socialism. And what emerged from that is this system where capitalism was going to be imposed on people. You're going to take a deal around the world, and everybody's going to get a deal, and everyone is going to take the deal, or they were going to not take the deal. If they didn't want to take the deal, they would sign up with communism, represented by the Soviet Union, in one way or another. Maybe they were anti, but then you, know, then you have the fact that this is a thing that's fixed in a geographic area. And bound by this cannibalistic scarcity. But even with that, you could ally yourself with uh, the Soviet Union or you could ally yourself with capitalism. Now, of course, in America, there were plenty of socialists who really believed in socialism but rejected the Soviet Union because it was not democratic. It didn't have all the bells and whistles of a civil society of virtue that I imagined myself living in. And yeah, that's because it was in a crisis condition. It was being strangled by capitalism. But over here in America, where I'm probably doing okay, even if I'm a worker, I'm getting more money than I used to get. And if I'm an intellectual, I'm literally living in a more comfortable, safe, uh, technologically convenient and interesting world than has ever been imagined by anybody. I can make this distinction and say the Soviets aren't worth supporting. I can afford to. But in the colonial world, it was being incorporated into capitalism after the, the, the imperial, the last old imperial rule was replaced by this new uh, dominion of a abstracted dollar empire of capitalism as the world system was uh, round into final uh, form. The same deal was being made. The people who said, I take that deal are your comprador classes who, who take power on behalf of capital. And those who say no ally with the Soviet Union and become rebels, fight against capitalism, are largely massacred, or in a few cases are able to win uh, guerrilla wars. And they don't care about the civil society bullshit because their titter is in the fucking ringer. They don't get a corner office or, or uh, 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 paid vacations. They get a gun to the head and the reimposition of colonial regimes of domination. 
Unless you're an army officer who gets to hold the gun instead of had it pointed at them, that's a bad deal, which is why you saw this huge rush to communism after World War II in the colonial world. But it was defeated in most of places like Africa and Latin America because there were enough locals who stood to gain in the short term from capitalism to make a deal. Like that's why Mao said a revolution isn't a dinner party because and that's meaningful because for uh, for Americans and Western Europeans after World War II revolution absolutely was a dinner party because of your relationship to capital from periphery or center And that's why I wonder if there was a situation where there was no Soviet Union to align everyone, align, to polarize workers in, in, in Europe and the United States, that maybe that class struggle would have gone differently. Because if you're fighting for socialism in the Western Europe and, you're, and the United States and the Soviet Union is what it is, that is going to lead you with a question, do I align with it or against it? And that question is going to be answered by, well... How much do you care about niceties and dinner party stuff? And the working class was divided on that question. It was not aligned. The thing that was supposed to align its goals was the general, the broad push towards socialism. And the creation of the Soviet Union created a fixed understanding of what that meant, which by definition shatters the psyche, the collective psyche of the working class and separates it into two groups. Now, maybe they all would have been defeated in turn without that uh, material force of Soviet communism to push against uh, fascism emerging. Or the lack of division maintains the, uh, the focus and the collective uh, effectiveness of these individual working class parties in the individual countries that they can push in the same direction even though they're not connected internationally. Not saying it could happen. I'm just saying I think that the world we're in is a world where a one of those inflection points happened and we failed to transition. We will not see heaven. And in that condition, then you have to look back and say, well, how could we have gone to heaven? And the thing is, at the end of the day, I believe... We could have. Because if we collectively could have gone to heaven, that means we all individually can be saved. And I believe that we all individually can be saved. This is where my, uh, this is where I, the fusion of politics and philosophy and theology come to me. Is that I believe at the end of the, more than anything I believe, and I think the thing that generates true religious uh, a feeling, as in religious feeling that expresses a truth, as opposed to the uh, mirror, the, the, the dark mirrored truth that society reproduces, the truth of human connectedness, the truth of harmony between humans and their environment and each other. 
That is all premised on a fund the fact that we can all be saved. And so that means things could have been different, which means I have to understand capitalism a certain way. I have to understand that it, even if capitalism was inevitable uh, once the Roman Empire fell because of Europe-specific conditions, uh, its victory did not have to happen. I believe we'll all be saved fundamentally because I do not believe that there is a distinction. There is no the Cartesian the Cartesian duality is the fundamental uh, filter of our individual experiences. That it's the Archon. Descartes is is uh, Yalboadith, if you want to think about it. He was re- recognizing the fundamental fracture we have that we have to repair. And that is the work of life, is to repair the breach and to deny that contradiction. That is what working out, in my mind, the dialectic is. The fundamental dialectic is the uh, non-existent distinction between self-perception and the universe. Because we cannot live with that. We We live, living is recognizing it as a distinction, recognizing it as a uh, dialectic. It is delusion. Like That is what generates conscious life. That is the, uh, the, the spark. It's, it's, it's all, uh, the, the explosions of, uh, of like the cosmic furnaces, the creation of stars and nuclear bombs and every human action is that conflict. We are all, as conscious beings, powered by our push to resolve this contradiction. And then the fact that every time we get to a resolution, we are repelled again. We are always repelled. We feel it, we can sit with it, but we cannot act with it. That is why the 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 idealized religious life is of solitary contemplation. Basically, no acting at all. Whether you're talking about a monk in in a Franciscan priory or a a monk on a hilltop in Tibet, it is not acting. Because acting on the world requires believing in that distinction believing in that separateness, and then trying to resolve it. Trying to resolve the unresolvable. Fix an equation that can't be fixed because the remainder is not something that can be expressed in language or symbol. It is a pure feeling. And so the task for all of us who are fallen, who do not have what it is in us to, uh, pers- to subsist on the meager sensory pleasures <laughs> of uh, the monastic life, who have to act on the world in order to get our treats, the task is to find a, a vocabulary of symbols that can stand in for the serenity of actlessness. 
the serenity of, of, of silence while we act. And that is, getting back to another cliche that I've talked about before and that I hate has been uh, commodified, but has to be mindfulness. It is recognizing the contradiction uh, as a contradiction. It is taking the premises only as thought experiments as much as possible, and that requires detaching yourself emotionally from the pursuit of these things. Okay, I went long again. I hope some of this makes sense. I'm sorry if I kept freezing because, I, as I said, I'm stealing Internet, but I feel like this was a good one. I feel like we got to some places. I'm once again just trying to, like, the act of me doing this is for me that spiritual act because I am a being at the end of history who has been totally alienated from my body and from the truths of my body, the feelings of my body. I live in the, in the abstracted realm of the, that the that, uh, print culture and then uh, uh, broadcast uh, in, uh, moving image culture uh, and then, of course, Internet culture is done to me. And so I am addicted to distraction and treats. I am discontented by the, by the void, by the prospect of, of really uh, living with the ephemerality and non-existence of my, my individuality. Uh, I, I can only viscerally believe things if I can describe them symbolically. And I would say that that is the essence of the abstracted modern psyche, is that it cannot be moved to act, not think, act, absent a, a, a formal conscious uh, belief. And this is what Protestantism began, the process of taking religious belief from the realm of the sensory to the realm of the mental, which is to turn it into a word puzzle. And going over that word puzzle allows you to sit or act in any way from a knowledge of truth, as opposed to ignoring it, accepting the reality of the world around you, and then acting in exact opposite of your self-interest. Your personal health, your uh, mental health, which is, of course, the same thing, your uh, treatment of other people, your, your, your conscious motivation. And so, like for me, a lot of reasons that I did these streams, I did so many of them, is that this was my substitution for that act of sitting, talking something through so that I believe it. And then having the associate good feelings of just sitting here not doing something unpleasant, not feeling anything unpleasant, because that's the thing. That's why people keep living. The human life in repose is one of more pleasure than pain. Human body in repose, unless there is an active injury to it, and even then you can ignore it, which I do, because my legs all hurt all the time, is one of more sensory pleasure than pain. And we can make it even more pleasure by pursuing pleasure. But pursuing pleasure hurts us, hurts those around us, makes us feel bad. And then we have to sit with that bad feeling. Emotionally, physically, we feel bad and we have to sit with it. And that makes us have to choose to do different things. It motivates us to act differently, 
to alleviate that, but because we're only trying to get at the surface of why we feel bad, we go in the wrong direction. So you have to be able to, in the moment of crisis and pain and unpleasantness, remember why you're doing it, which is the greater truth that can be most deeply felt when you are consciously connecting the sensual pleasures of life to this truth. And the sensual pleasure of being in repose is the most pure sort of pleasure, meditation, prayer, because it does not involve you imbibing anything in your own body that makes you feel a certain way. It doesn't involve you selfishly interacting with other people in a way that makes you feel guilty and that that guilt you then have to get away from. And it is, belief is the ability to pursue stillness while acting. And the reason that we're in the death death spiral we're in is that the actual Protestants who are left, because obviously, as I I hope I will have made clear by now, the premise of what this all means is that we are all Protestants. We're all inheritors of that tradition. We are all, we have been bootstrapped by global capitalism into this matrix. But it has evolved over time. Some people now are secular Protestants. But there are still people who have the form of religion and they believe in God as, an, as a real abstract thing and they believe in heaven as a real place. They believe they'll go there. But that belief is so abstracted from the life they lead and the things they pursue that they cannot, that they're actually connecting it to uh, the opposite of the truth that those things are supposed to represent. Those things are supposed to represent the fact that we are all the same and that we are all in harmony and we can live that way. If you are a Christian who believes in capitalism and the self, which is basically all of them in the Western world, then you believe the opposite. You act uh, the opposite. We are not reconcilable. And Protestantism says this explicitly. We are not reconcilable to God. We are not reconcilable to ourselves and each other. And so we need intervening institutions of authority like the capital market, the compulsion to eat or starve to make us act accordingly. That's why so many Protestants love to say, well, if there wasn't, uh, if you didn't believe in God, then what stops me from raping and killing people? It's like, Because for you, God is a set of rules to follow, to go to heaven and be rewarded, because it is a selfish, individual pursuit of salvation. There is no felt connection to the fellow human being. They are enemies to you. You are as alienated as a Randian, only you have a a formal religious gloss and a a, uh, supernatural imaginary to connect it to. And so that means that you feel bad, but your formal understanding of yourself as a Christian makes you act in accordance with systems that benefit you in one way, allow you to live a decadent lifestyle, but bind you in another, and that make your understanding of, well, what's heaven? What is heaven? I'm imagining heaven. What is it? Well, what is pleasure to me? Pleasure is earthly pleasure. Pleasure is seafood buffet 
the cigar, quarter, uh, a trip to Six Flags. Well, those things all on Earth depend on surplus abstraction and exploitation. They're built into the package. And you can enjoy them to the degree that you engage in this social contract. So your mind has literally reversed good and evil. You're still pursuing good, and you think it's good, but it is actually evil. And we're all pursuing evil to the degree that we are pursuing our self-interest. Now, I'm pursuing my self-interest too. I'm doing evil, but I also try to be conscious of my understanding of religious truth to drive my actions and make me hopefully less evil than other people. If you are a self-conscious, like a self-conscious libertarian type, like you are a, which is a lot of people, you are a homo economicus, you are that last man, or you are a Protestant gloss on that, and you believe in God and, and the supernatural, but you believe you will be rewarded in heaven with the, the pleasures of the flesh, and not reunion with God, then you will do good in your mind, and it will impact your decisions, but it won't stop you from doing the worst thing you could ever do in any situation, because in your mind those things will be the same. Okay. And of course, this is why the only vital monotheistic religion is Islam. Because it was not built, modern Islam, modern understanding of Islam communicated globally, was not created by capitalism. It was dominated from without by capitalism. And that's a meaningful distinction. That means that it is a religious faith that is grounded and not abstracted the way that Christianity is. And that means it's vital in a way Christianity can't be. But it is still constrained by capitalism. Because people are, might be operating off of this more vital religious belief, but it is still in a capitalist context. But of course, the problem with Islam is that, as I said, it, there's nothing within it that really militates against uh, this religious belief being incorporated into capitalism. Like Islam defeating the West is not the victory for socialism or even like a religious, uh, a theocratic uh, communion of, of, of believers. It would be a reconstruction of domination because Islam was born uh, in domination and, and validates domination. It has to be transformed by the, the interaction with working class consciousness, which is the class consciousness of the exploited, the self-consciously exploited, people who understand themselves as the victims of a social order, not the beneficiaries. And that... And that interaction happened within Islam, of course, but it was similarly defeated from without, in that, their case, by uh, the U.S. government 
literally undermining secular uh, Arab uh, uh, nationalism that was embedded that had embedded within it socialist concepts was of course not socialist always, but like had socialist elements interacted with the working class and was defeated in favor of a Wahhabism that emerged from the pre-capitalist, pre-self-consciously uh, uh, subaltern ideology of Islam, when it was the ide- ideology of slaver, slave owners and, and, and tribal chiefs. And so you have this reactionary religious tradition now interacting with the modern world. That's why the hopeful synthesis for me is uh, like some sort of uh, Islamic-derived monotheism with an apocalyptic uh, horizon wedded to uh, the uh, thoroughly secularized but still communally conscious Chinese. There's your synthesis. Yeah, actually, never mind all that. Uh, wokeness is a religion. Actually. Yeah, of course, the Shia were, 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 uh, tended to be more politically radical because they were a subaltern identity within Islam. And yeah, that's why you have this war between the Chinese state and Islam in China happening right now. But of course, the winner will not be one or the other. That's not how it works. Something will be built from it. Don't know what it'll be, but it's a, it's, we're moving in a direction. And then inflection points occur and that direction changes in ways that we can't anticipate because we are bounded by this moment. That's my way of punting the football. But yeah, like that is why I've said this before, why wokeness as a religion is, is such a slogan of a dullard, because it, me- it says nothing. It means nothing. Wokeness is a ritual, an individual ritual of public virtue, which is exactly what Calvinist, urbanized, Christian, self-conscious, uh, self-conception of morality is. Duh. Everyone is pursuing that. That's just how it is pursued among a secularized, educated, urban, downwardly mobile, that's the key component, uh, lightly, I guess you'd say, relative to others, exploited sector of the, uh, of the precariat. Not unexploited, but relatively lightly exploited. In that, you feel that the system benefits you enough to be invested in. As opposed to people who are so alienated from the system, they drop out completely. Which is an increasing number of the actual working class in this country, as in the people who like feel like they're working. Like their day is, I am laboring for someone else. The ones who feel that the most keenly have the least investment in our civic rituals. Care the least about any of this bullshit. Which is why they weren't reachable during the Sanders campaign. And that is why wokeness is such a fixed idea fix on uh, the broad liberal left. Because it's all they have. 
There, it's all we have. Because we are stuck in this machinery of exploitation, and we are going to feel some combination of outrage and guilt about that, and we have to express it somewhere, and we can't express it by acting. We have to express it by thinking, and then expressing those think thoughts and validating them by having them ritually reaffirmed and echoed back to us. We need to socially echolocate to find a niche, a place where we can compare ourselves and our virtues to others and say, okay, I'm better than them and I'm worse than them. That means I'm still within the green line and I'm okay. That is how you conduct yourself as a political being absent agency. And that is why wokeness becomes the most dominant register because it's the only thing that unifies everyone on that side. Everyone who feels more guilt than rage, like forget PMC, any of this bullshit. The real dividing line we're talking about are people who feel more guilt than rage about their current conditions of life, like their actual material conditions. Yes, how they think the world is around them, but that is only a reflection of their real feelings, which are connected to their actual lives. The bad feelings they feel, do they feel more guilt or more rage? That is the real dividing line. If you feel more guilt than rage, you are on, broadly, the liberal left. You could be a socialist, but you don't have to be a socialist. You're, uh, but you are everyone on uh, the broad left, which is what the post-leftists realized, is, oh, these people are all the same. And it's like, in the sense that they feel more guilt than rage, yes, they are. But as things get worse, a lot of people who now are on the post-left, they feel worse than they used to feel for a bunch of reasons. And that means they have to put that feeling somewhere. They used to feel more guilt than rage. Now they feel more rage than guilt. And if you want to know why there's the actual populist energy on this country is on the right, like politically organized and not stochastic and relatively uh, uh, un- um, coordinated, and as a result, less politically uh, effective uh, is on the right. Because these are people who feel a political rage to the United States. Now, there are plenty of people who feel political rage to the United States that are not on the right. They have rejected both. They don't like Democrats either. They're the radical left. They're the other side of the coin, the, the people who fought the hardest uh, during the George Floyd protests and got the most violent reply. But they're not part of the project. They're alienated from politics. And then on top of them, you have the people who aren't alienated. And this is what we're really talking about. The people who aren't alienated from politics broadly, as in picking a side and rooting for it and then acting on my preference those people are guilty. Those people are overwhelmingly people who feel guilty. And that means that they cannot be... Now, some of them feel a lot of misery and feel a lot of rage. Not as much guilt as guilt, but they feel rage and they feel misery and their lives suck. Like, actually suck. Is it not like, oh, it's hell world? Like, I write for a magazine and I have depression, but my day-to-day -day life is one of ease and pleasure? Like, actually, my day-to-day -day life is... Like feeling physical pain as my body is taxed for somebody else's 
a prophet and I don't get to see it. I am alienated from my time on earth. I am made to feel bad for no good end. For someone else's end, I get to feel like a puppet. Plenty of people are those on the left. But they are the least likely to vote. Because that rage alienates them from a system that they no longer feel beneficial, they can get benefits from. And there are fewer of them in the tent of people who care about politics than there are people who have something to lose and know they have something to lose by the end of the system as they know it. And so that means that while you all might agree in theory that class is more important than race, uh, or maybe you don't believe that because, like I'm saying, this is a coalition. This is liberals, too. Because it's a cross-class coalition, you have no uh, uh, agreement on what like a class identity even is. It cannot be organized around because it is a point of rupture. What can be agreed upon by all is the unjust nature of American society vis-a-vis -vis race, intersectional identities. That is the only unifying feature amongst everybody who is politically active towards a left goal, i.e. a place that allows them to feel less mis misery and less rage or feel less guilt on behalf of those who suffer it, that I know who suffer it, that I know suffer for my benefit, but that I don't feel myself, which is most people on the political left. One way or the other, they suffer less than they feel the beneficiary of suffering. Now, some people talk, some people say that's why you're going to see like. You should be seeing collapsing uh, voting participation, and yet you're actually seeing people vote more and more than they used to. Like people vote, more people voted last year than previously. Like, like there was a big jump across all um, demographics, and that was what made people so alarmed about Trump because he gained in all these other demographic groups. He lost among comfortable whites. But he lost so much amongst the comfortable whites in strategic states that it, it wiped out those gains elsewhere. But those gains were among people who are still alienated from politics, who don't filter things through a political lens, who do not connect a political ideology to their sense of self-worth, self which is how I would define politically active people in this country. Like, when you're a member of the left broadly or you're the right, it's because you self-identify with a political tradition, a political goal. People who are voting more and more now, I think, are people who don't have that. They have political views, but they are not emotionally held. What they have emotionally held are views about identity, views about who they are in a cultural context, who they are in a demographic context. And most importantly, their aesthetic preferences in the culture war that they are observing and that we're all observing. 
When you're watching the culture war, you're watching the, the psyche of middle America shadow box. And you have the guilty against the pissed, which is the Republicans and the Democrats. And if you're watching it from outside and you have to pick a side, which are deteriorating conditions and the increased politicization of all culture makes you have to do. Like if you're a person who you used to be able to be a person in this country who you didn't want, if you didn't want to hear about politics, you could just decide not to. There's other stuff to do. There's other stuff to watch. You could be apolitical. You can do it now too still, but it's much harder. It's much more difficult because the people who make culture now are more hysterical about making it than they've ever been before because they feel more pissed and more guilty than they ever have before because things are worse than they ever have been, but they're still doing so good, and they feel so weird about that. They either feel mad about their suppressed guilt or their neurotic because of their recognized guilt. And they get more and more, they want more politics in their culture. They want to be able to reinforce their political identity more by consuming more political content. If they make content, they want it to reflect their political views more. It increases the volume of political discourse and it spreads its influence over other forms of entertainment, other forms of spectacle. So that you're basically thrusting back on people who have rejected politics already, consciously or subconsciously, Politics back to them and forcing them to make a choice. Who are you going to root for? And if you don't have a political commitment to one or the other, you have an aesthetic commitment. What do I like? What makes me feel good? A bunch of weeping Hamilton quoting uh, dorks whipping themselves on one side. Or, if you're not white, condescending to you on one side. Or people just having a good time. People fucking with those other people because somebody's feeling bad in both of these uh, spectacular imaginaries but the spectacular imaginary of liberalism broadly you feel bad in the spectacular imaginarium of uh, the right they feel bad which makes you feel good by comparison you get to feel good by watching them feel bad which, there's no choice. This is an easy choice. If you've not been fully neuroticized by ritually reinscribing the behavior of a neurotic post-Protestant, you would rather feel good than uh, make yourself feel bad. No, they said, white wingers aren't having fun either. No, correct. Nobody's having fun. Everyone's miserable. That's why it keeps getting worse. But there is a spectacle you're involving yourself in that you lie to yourself about. I'm having fun. I'm having fun watching this documentary, the 15th documentary this month I've watched about the Tulsa uh, race riot of 1921, or I'm uh, owning the, the chuds online or something. There, at some level, you're doing it because it provides pleasure. But it is a short-term pleasure that is eventually uh, not uh, distinguishable from numbness. But all you can do is that, more of it, and double down on it. So you feel miserable, but you pursue a pleasure. And in the conservative liberal imaginary, it is a pleasure of inflicting pain on another. And in the liberal imaginary, it's 
inflicting pain on oneself. What was the big streaming show? What was the big streaming phenomenon of the immediate post-Trump era? Uh, As soon as he gets in. The Handmaid's fucking Tale. The Handmaid's Tale, as they say in Pittsburgh. It's the frickin' Handmaid's Tale. Imagining myself martyred. Because that's what it is. It's martyrdom. and w- Which is the highest state of the uh, believing Christian. In, in your, you are pleasurably seeking the uh, inscribement of your own misery. For, for, the, for the entire Trump presidency was the libido unleashed. I have fun. I have a good time. And the fact that you're mad about it makes it even better. That's the real stuff. That's the real juice. Like, Trump is the most miserable man on earth. He has never been happy for a second of his life. He has only had sex, one of like the most intimate, powerful, physical pleasures you can have. He has only had sex to procreate and because he thinks he has to do it to be a man. He's pursued pleasure his entire life and has never, never found it. But his object of pleasure is himself. It's not somebody else. Somebody else is the object of pain because that's how we have pleasure. It's a comparison only and always. It's not a thing in itself. That's why so many conservatives go crazy about uh, Kaepernick. Because they only have X amount they want to care about politics. And then they want to care about things like fucking sports. And they don't want to get political feelings about sports. They want to get the pure aesthetic pleasures of sports. And of course, that's built on a uh, political scaffolding, but it's one that they are invisible to. That's what makes it fun. It reinforces their political views without them having to think about it. It's great. And you make them think about it and make them get riled up. They don't want to feel that. It's still the same like pleasure-seeking cycle, but it, they're now the aggrieved ones. Because they're, of course, always feeling aggrieved, too. And those, and those guilt-ridden liberals, liberals also feel aggrieved all the time. As I said, these are, these are the engines. When I say there's two things, you have to assume that they're within each other. Because it is the trying to re... It's two, It's a huge group of people, all of them, trying to resolve the same contradiction and just popping up on one side or the other of an imagined divide and then pursuing their lives through that. So everyone is aggrieved. Everyone is uh, guilty. Everyone is trying to assuage one or the other by uh, making themselves feel good and by making other people feel bad. And the thing is, is as the horizon of like actually materially ameliorative politics goes away, liberals and leftists are increasingly going to have to find their pleasure in the pain of someone else. Or else they're going to have to uh, accept their final martyrdom, which they do not want to do. They would love to be martyred uh, symbolically uh, on TV, but they themselves would rather not. Thank you very much. 
which is, as I said, the drive of the of the January 6th penitent is they're going to annihilate me. And in my annihilation, I will be declared an elect. I sacrifice for my beliefs. Or they imagine they will. What they'll probably do is run towards pleasure and away from pain. Because that's the overdriving instinct. Everything else is a fantasy. Because we live spiritually impoverished times. And in moments of crisis, we have nothing to fall back on but self-pleasure in the narrowest sense. So that means all these liberals and leftists are going to accommodate the new order where, oh yeah, no, uh, formal democracy is dead. Uh, any hope of equitable resources is gone. We're going to have to choose people to live and people to die. And most on the left, liberal side will say, okay, well then if somebody has to die, then make it the conservatives because they have it coming because they are bad. Of course, this is the same decision that the Democrats, the conservatives are making. They're saying, yes, point this machine at them because they're bad, because they made it happen. And of course, they're both looking in a mirror. While this is happening, the lower half of both of these coalitions, the people who are more exploited than, explo- than feel exploited, or the, more, the, the people who are more exploited than feel uh, the beneficiaries of exploitation, the people who are more aggrieved, like genuinely aggrieved, than pseudo-aggrieved, they're falling away. They're being cannibalized. The machine is cannibalizing them, both, while the mechanism, the gimbal is being pushed by these two sides grabbing for the controls. And I think the final uh, reconciliation of this is a Matthew McConaughey techno-genocidal empire, where we work out all of our culture war uh, kinks until all the really miserable people are dead or enslaved, and the only ones left to care about politics are inside a relative uh, uh, comfortable bubble, and a real, have a real physical distance from the suffering that's being created by the system because it's been technologically erased, they're going to only have their spectacle again. All the politics will have been washed out. Everybody who's really suffering will be uh, eliminated and no longer a political subject, no longer even thought of as a political subject or a human being by those inside the circle of wire. And then you're going to have people inside. And all the politics, all of those bygones will be bygones. And all we'll have is our programs and our shows and our spectacle. Shorn of all the political content that is now overwhelming it. And what represents that? Matthew motherfucking McConaughey. Pure aesthetic uh, uh, beauty, charisma, hanging around with a friend. And that friend can tell you, look, it's all right, all right, all right. These people have to die. These people have to be instrumentalized for our benefit. It's not ideal, but it's the best we can hope for. And we all need to uh, accept how things are and respect one another. One another being the people within the wire. Because, hey, what's the alternative here? You're going to open the doors? You're not opening the doors. Get real. Not opening the doors. And if that's the only option, and this is where we get to the point where all of our denial can no longer be sustained by the material conditions... We can't have our fake little uh, gunfight, our little uh, pseudo-politics. We can no longer afford that. So if the stakes really are, get with the program or open the doors or fight and then be kicked out or eliminated. Let's, let's all watch President uh, 
um, let's watch President. What's a beloved McConaughey character who's not Rust Cole? I, he, I can't even think of any because he's him in all of them. Let our beloved, uh, um, what the fuck is his name in A Time to Kill? Oh, uh, yeah. Yes, there we go. Let our beloved Palmer Joss of Contact tell us, like, cool facts about Mars that our rover just discovered. Uh, and then be like, oh, yeah, and by the way, uh, um, we just uh, nuclear scrubbed uh, North Africa. And, of course, this is one path. Because these machines are eating themselves, the termites are, are, are chewing from within. These structures that are sustaining this trajectory are being destroyed. They're buckling from within. Something else, by necessity, will emerge from all of us uh, struggling in the wreckage. And, and, and what that is, that's going to be a roll of the cosmic dice. It's going to be wild, but we all have to make peace with the fact that we, none of us, will likely ever feel like that moment is happening. We will all only be stuck in our little tunnel trying to deal with the world as it is right in front of us. And hopefully, if enough of us are looking right in front of us and not back in our head, not in our imagined little uh, uh, universe where we're God and, and the world is separate, uh, if we can act from a more grounded, uh, pre symbolic faith in uh, our fundamental unity, then we can take this wreckage and build something else out of it and begin that process of trying to build something. Once again, will it be uh, the, that actual post-scarcity world? Probably not, but it'll be a thing to move towards. It will be human life with meaning. 